Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by Uka Pienaar, Head of Emerging Market Fixed Income Sovereign Research at Pine Bridge Investments. A real privilege to have you here, Ilka. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today. Thank you, Damian. My pleasure. So, Ilka, Pine Bridge just released its mid-year outlook, and of course, one of the primary themes is a shift away from the U.S. and toward non-dollar economies. I'm wondering for our audience, if you could expand on that a bit, which regions, which countries look most favorable as we push into the second half? Yeah, so uh, this year is definitely a regional theme. Um, So it's not just from a fundamental perspective, but also a valuation picture. So we've been quite upbeat on EM fundamentals all along, and now we just waited for the market to turn. Uh, And we get quite a significant yield pickup um, in, in addition to those favorable fundamentals. So regionally, 2023 is definitely Asia's year. Uh, even though China's reopening has been slower than expected, it's still significantly, oh, it will have a higher growth rate than the rest of the regions. Um, and, and another region that's come through quite solid with growth upgrades is the LATAM region. Uh, so those two are standing out for us at this moment. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, one of the legs supporting that bullish narrative in EM credit is really on the corporate side where you have decade low levels of leverage. But, you know, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on EM sovereign fundamentals. I'm talking balance of payment, reserves, debt obligations. I mean, EM public debt surged to 66% of GDP from 54% in 2019. I mean, is this a start of a side of sort of broader trend of worsening fundamentals on the sovereign side? Or do you expect things to improve? So we always compare EM with DM when the market almost enjoys uh, showing the pessimistic side of EM. It's quite easy when you start contrasting it with DM to realize that EM is in quite a healthy position. So the jump in debt to GDP that you just referenced, um, despite that increase, EM debt to GDP is still half that of the DM universe. Um, And DM itself had a large increase over the lockdown. Uh, And it's one thing that we've picked up whenever new figures are released by the IMF or any of those sort of world institutions, they publish numbers that show an increasing debt to GDP ratio for EM. Where we've been forecasting falling debt to GDP ratios since the end of 2020. And that's really what the picture has been like for the last two years. And we expect that to continue for through 2000, well, 2023 and 2024. So I would say there's a little bit of a, a, a assumption that needs to be debunked in that regard. Um, even though there are a lot of there, there were a lot of weak EMs, but they have left the playing field. And when you look at the rating trajectory of the EM universe as we have it, or as things stand now, we expect quite a few rating upgrades over the next few years. And that's really driven by the debt to GDP that's more than sustainable and, well, as I just said, uh, tracking somewhat lower. So, Ilka, let's talk a little bit about, you know, I, I mean, I understand, you know, what's going on in EM High Yield, and we'll talk about progress in Zambia and the Paris Club and it's, you know, 
other bilateral creditors such as China in a minute, but I'd really like to ask you about EM investment grade credit because forever EMIG credit has tracked U.S. corporate credit like to a T. But today, if I'm not mistaken, we're at levels that we've really not touched before. I mean, I think EMIG is actually below USIG at, the, at, at this minute. I mean, I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit. I mean, the opportunities you're seeing in EMIG credit, where are they? Are they in sovereigns? Are they in corporates? I mean, I'm just curious where where, where those opportunities may lie. Yeah, so if you think that if you take a few steps back or a few 10,000 steps back and you ask yourself, what is an emerging market? It really is a country in the process of growing up and becoming a developed market. And what we've seen in the EM universe over the last cycle is that a lot of these EMs have grown up and they now have stronger fundamentals than many of their developed market counterparts. So the IG cohort of of EMs are more DM-like sometimes than DM itself. And that that we are seeing uh, being reflected in the spreads, which are currently below the spread levels of US IG, as you just mentioned. so from an opportunistic well from an opportunity perspective when we do our total return calculations as you rightly said it is mostly corporate ig that stands out so sovereign ig looks quite expensive at this juncture where corporate ig from a risk adjusted perspective gives you the bigger pickup and there's still some spread compression left where corporate IG can join sovereign IG um, for the the spread levels to converge. So we think that's really uh, still an opportunity that can be exploited. So when you say EM sovereign is expensive, are you talking about just investment grade or high yield as well? Because that kind of takes us to this conversation about the Paris Club and the common framework and, you know, the agreement that's just been reached in Zambia and what that means for countries like Argentina and Lebanon and Sri Lanka and Pakistan and Ethiopia and Tunisia and Ghana and Ecuador and you name it. So I'm just curious, you know, what comes next for those distressed EM sovereign credits? Yeah, so we've seen a significant rally in the high yield space. Uh, so over the last two months or so, this, uh, the, the index, the spread levels compressed by about 80 basis points in June. And then we've had another 70 basis points so far through this month. Um, so the magnitude of the move has been quite uh, steep. So you might think at this stage, oh, it's completely expensive. Let me take a step back. But when you compare the market to not the last three years, but say we talk the previous decade, 2010 to 2019, before we had the downturn, we are still significantly wider than what we were back then. So if these credits can get their houses in order and sort of reset, which is what happens with a default, you have a proper reset, your debt to GDP is cut, uh, then there are definitely opportunities to be had. You just need to have quite a strong stomach to invest in such market. And obviously your timeline is slightly longer. Um, it's not going to be something that happens in two months' time. But to your point, if we look at what happened in the last, say, six week, uh, six weeks, it's literally um, a few positive news points that have come through and the market has jumped on them. For instance, Pakistan. So the IMF deal came um, or the IMF passed a review, which wasn't expected. They gave Pakistan the benefit of the doubt. And what happens? You have donor money coming in more than doubling their reserve levels in the question of a day. And uh, same with Zambia. So the restructuring process has been dragging on since 2020. 
very opaque. And all of a sudden we hear, okay, they have a, uh, the deal signed with the um, uh, the order, well, the public creditors. And that gives us hope that that restructuring process will move quite quickly. But it just shows you that the market has been very pessimistic on those credits um, and, and, and rightly so, because a high level of uncertainty will, will give you that pessimism. But as soon as the market gets this sort of whiff that things will improve, there's definitely quite a lot of value left. So the default probabilities that were priced last year and early this year were completely out of line uh, with what, what, what we calculated. Um, you mentioned Argentina. So I love this quote where someone once said, so you have different groups of uh, or different ways of classifying um, economies. You have DMs, you have EMs, and you have Japan and Argentina. So Argentina <laughs> is a case completely on its own. Um, but that is another one that investors are watching really closely. Um, I was in the country recently, and even though things will remain precarious in, the sh in say, the next three or four months, our outlook on Argentina has improved on a longer-term trajectory, given the country's structural potential growth rate um, and a possible change in government. Um, so, uh, Damien, I can continue to talk yeah. about <laughs> DTRA all day long. No, yes. I'm with you. I'm with you. I see the same value you do. The only problem is you don't get paid a nice coupon to, hold, to take on that type of risk. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. But, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I have to hit on it, is um, that it takes a bit of stomach when you're looking at these distressed DM credits, Argentina included. You know, one area that takes a bit of stomach uh, of late, obviously, has been Asian credit and China property more specifically. And, you know, when I look at the idiosyncratic stories that you and the team of Prime Bridge are most focused on, I'm talking the Macau gaming sector, the Hong Kong retailers, the broader travel and leisure sector. You know, my read into that is you're just betting on, you know, Chinese locals heading for the hills. No, I'm just kidding. What I really wanted to know, Elka, is, you know, what are your thoughts on Asian credit and specifically Asian high yield credit as it relates to the Chinese property sector through the second half. Yeah, so when we, um, so the property sector has been the main weak point, um, so over the last two years, um, and we do think we are very close to a trough in that cycle. So we have seen the weakness subside. So if you, for instance, look at things like um, housing sales, et cetera, the decline has been a lot slower. Uh, we also expect the authorities to announce some measures very soon. We've we've had one, uh, well, we actually think it's a bit weak, but we did have an announcement earlier today um, where they are going to loosen some of, some of the property restrictions. Um, so, where we see opportunity in China specifically, as well as high yield, is more on the retails side um, of things. So we are betting on the consumer. Um, so if you think of everything that the country has been through over the last two or three years, not only was it a lockdown, it was also a regulatory clampdown from the authorities. And then we also had the US-China friction as well. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a world where the pressure is a lot less. So um, all of the sectors that are more sort of orientated or pivoted towards the consumer uh, is where we do see some opportunities. Um, and as you also see in our Outlook document, when it comes to uh, default rates, it's much lower uh, than the US is currently offering in the um, high yield space. Um, and you also get a good yield pickup. 
Um, so for us, that's quite a quite a sweet spot to exploit. You know, okay, I know your focus really more is on the credit side, but I have to go local on you just a little bit here because, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing here is we've had a slew of rate hikes across the whole of EM, you know, in the better part of the last two years. And, you know, I'm looking at one year, three month forward rates in places like Brazil to Mexico or Hungary to Poland, India, now South Korea. And if you look at one year into the future, you know, rates are expected to be lower than they are now. Does this mean that we are going to see some of these, you know, emerging, you know, market economies that have grown up, you know, starting to, you know, cut rates in the face of what might very well be sticky inflation? So when we look at the evidence so far, it seems that inflation is dropping quite quickly in the EM universe. Yeah, so even though it's not, so I probably, I won't use the word sticky. I'd rather use the word that it will still be above target. So about, um, about target inflation, say for the forecast universe, uh, when you look at the amount of rate cuts that we expect over, say, the next 12 to 18 months, it's going to keep pace with the disinflation. So that means the real policy rates are really being protected. They're not going to be um, eroded over the next um, 12 to 18 months. So we still see uh, quite a good case to be made for EMFX as well as EM local currency yields. We've always said that 2023 is the year of local currency for EMs. Um, if you think of the two most significant drivers for local currency, it really is central bank rates and CPI. And both of those uh, will show significant changes um, as we're going forward, inflation has already run uh, already come down quite a bit. And we now think the central bank cuts will start to come through. Um, some of your heavyweights will come to the party quite soon. For instance, Chile is expected to cut next week and Brazil on the 2nd of August. And as soon as that happens, we think those local currency yields can come in even further. So if you think of the returns that we've already had in local currency i'm talking 17 percent in the last 12 months and i think okay i'm with you i'm with you i mean how do you think the chilean peso and the brazilian real are going to respond when they start cutting rates do you think that you know the currencies are going to hold up there because that really is the question i mean you're taking me there so i'm just cutting into it i mean i agree with you it's all about em real yields and if you look at currency performance in 2023 it's all about carry so i completely am on your page my concern is that when these central banks start to, you know, you know, cut rates to stimulate a bit, what do the currencies do? Will they remain, you know, will they hold on to some of these gains or will investors head for the hills? I mean, what are your thoughts there? So your theory is sound. Uh, I just updated my BRL model yesterday. And when you had a look at the coefficients, so one thing that's currently benefiting the BRL is a growth differential. So it had a bit of an upside, uh, a surprise in growth, but leaving that aside, so lower real policy rates should give you a weaker effects. But then what the interesting dynamic is in this cycle is that foreign investors, so non-residents, have really been on the sidelines since 2019. We have not seen significant inflows into local into the local currency space. Uh, and that is starting to trickle back in. So even though the real policy rate differential will start to fall, um, obviously when you compare it with the US, that real policy rate will start to um, fall. We are 
forecasting that those non-resident flows will return and therefore continue to support the currency. Uh, even though we don't see further strengthening in the real, uh, so we we do think it will remain well supported. The fair value on a 12-month basis, just to give you a bit of context, is just below five against the dollar. So some weakness factored in, but not as much as you would have expected if you were just looking at the real policy rate, where those flows are important side of it as well. Elka, I have to thank you so much for taking your time to share your thoughts and your views with us here today. I just have one more question. It's a loaded question. You don't have to answer it, obviously. <laughs> Do you think the Fed's going to be able to engineer a soft landing here? So, first of all, it's nothing that the Fed engineered. So they might take the accolade, but I do not think it was anything to do with the Fed. It's got to do with a desynchronized economic cycle. So when you segment the U.S. economy into its various segments, so in other words, primary, secondary, and tertiary, the primary and secondary sector of the U.S., those two have already been in steep recessions for the last year, if I will, I will send you a chart. It is quite staggering to witness that. The economy has been running almost on fumes. So it's literally been the tertiary sector and the job market that has been holding things um, up. And the other variable that's missing is fiscal policy. So when you look at what the U.S. Treasury has done year to date, they've boosted GDP by around 1.5 percentage points alone. So only fiscal policy. And I think that's being missed. And now we're talking about a soft landing where some sectors are already in a downturn. But what happens in the economic cycle? So, so Ecos 101 tells you when something goes down, you're going to reach a bottom and then you need to start trading higher. And that's what I'm thinking is happening currently. Some sectors, for instance, manufacturing, is already so low that you're going to see that organic type of bounce higher. Mm -hmm. um, so there, that's sort of um, eroding the recession. We already had two quarters of contraction in GDP early parts of last year. Um, so I think there are different... So the desynchronization of the cycle make it seem like it's a soft landing, um, but it's really just sectors moving at a different pace and a different timing. Um, so barring the black swans that we don't know what they are and they might still appear on the horizon, but barring those, um, that might be sort of the scenario that we are in, that it looks like we're not going to get a significant downturn in the U.S., uh, compared to say 08, 09. Barring the black swans, Ilka PNR, thank you so <laughs> much for sharing your thoughts and your views with us here today. And thank you to our audience of ever-enduring, always committed emerging market enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward.